Welcome back to Season 3 of What Do Scientists Do? A show where we talk to expert guests and learn about their favorite science topics. My name is Mab and I'm taking over from Jessica, and today I got to talk to Alex Cadell, who teaches us all about getting ready for climate change, what climate change will look like in our communities, and what climate change will look like in a hundred years. How can we build communities to withstand climate change? What will this look like? And how is this whole thing a creative process? Let's find out. So hello and welcome. You're listening to What Do Scientists Do? A show where we talk to expert guests and learn about their favorite science topics. My name is Mav and today I'm talking to Alex. Uh, So Alex, if you want to introduce yourself and your pronouns. Yeah, hi everyone. My name is Alex Cadell. I uh, use he, him pronouns and I am the Climate Services Specialist for Nova Scotia. Climate services specialist. So specifically, what kind of science or technology or engineering or math do you do? Great question. So I guess at the high level, I'm a climate scientist. Uh, That means that I study changes in Earth's climate over time and how those changes might affect our planet. Uh, Now, I mean, there's a couple of different ways of being a climate scientist. Some people are more focused on research, uh, for example, gathering and analyzing information about our climate system, our atmosphere, our oceans, our land, how all those things interact to create the weather patterns that we experience. Uh, For myself, I'm more focused on climate services, as I mentioned. So that's really providing people with guidance on how climate change information can be used to make good decisions about the future. So kind of a more new and emerging branch of how people interact with climate science and uh, happy to be taking this on as a role so far. Amazing. That sounds really, really cool. So here in Nova Scotia, I think a lot of kids and youth and even adults like me, I think about climate change almost every day. So where do we see climate change here in Nova Scotia? We see it in uh, a lot of things that we that we care about. Uh, I think for me, I usually describe kind of five high level changes that we're seeing in our climate here in the province. Those being, it's getting warmer. Uh, you know, for example, we're seeing summer days and nights become more uncomfortable. We're seeing winters get milder. Uh, we're seeing a greater risk of things like heat waves, wildfires, and droughts. Um, Second, we're seeing our precipitation patterns change, so we're getting a little bit more precipitation, rain and snow overall. Uh, We tend to be seeing more rain instead of snow with warming temperatures, and we're seeing more intense downpours. Uh, We're seeing more intense tropical storms and hurricanes with higher winds and more destructive storm surge, with warming oceans that enable those types of systems to travel a lot further north and uh, impact our region of the world. We're seeing sea levels rise, bringing coastal flooding to our communities and and coastal ecosystems uh, and offshore as well, which is a big part of what our province cares about. We're seeing our oceans get warmer and more acidic, which alters marine processes and and impact species. Uh, And really, if that's kind of the high level, how the climate is changing, All of those things individually have impacts on our communities, they have impacts on our health, on our economy, on our environment, and even our ways of life. Uh, So trying to understand and address those changes is really what my work is all about. Amazing. That's very, very cool. So what does your day-to-day look like as a climate scientist? So if you're talking about addressing like sea level rise or um, lots of flooding and coastal changes, what do you kind of tell people about this kind of thing and and how it's going to be changing and impacting their life? 
Yeah, I think the, the really exciting thing for me is that my role is almost entirely focused on helping people to access, understand, and apply information about how our climate is changing. So those exact type of trends I was just talking about. Um, and maybe I'll just break that down a little bit more. So in terms of access, there's a ton of amazing data, research, resources, and tools that are out there that have been developed by the climate science community in, in recent years. But for the average person that's trying to figure out what to do about all this, it's difficult to know what exists, where to find it, and, and how to use it. So that's a part of what I do. Uh, in terms of understanding uh, that information, a lot of my role is about using that data and those resources, that tool, uh, those tools to help tell a story about climate change, relating climate information to the things that people care about. Uh, again, those impacts to their communities, their health, the environment, ways of life, everything like that, uh, to really make that connection to the fact that I already care about climate change because climate change is impacting things that uh, that I love and the people around me. Um, so I, I think that's a really important part of it. Uh, and on the application side of things, again, for many years, we've used historical data to inform how we design for the future. Uh, again, both for infrastructure and planning for, for health outcomes and even just trying to understand our environment as an example. Uh, but in a changing climate, just looking at the past is no longer good enough. So we need to help people use the right climate data to support their work. Uh, and maybe just as a few quick examples, you know, climate data can inform what types of crops we grow. It can inform how we design roads and bridges, inform nature conservation, and even things like how to keep people safe from extreme weather and so much more than that. So my, my role, my day-to-day -day is about providing these types of services to everyone in the province for free. Uh, so I work directly with you know, provincial government departments, municipalities, indigenous communities, uh, different community organizations, academics, private industry, you know, even just everyday individuals that have questions about the changing climate, what it means for them. Um, I, I think there's so many people right now that are realizing our seasons, our weather patterns are already different from what they used to be, realizing that climate change is here, it's happening, it's affecting the things that they care about, and there's a lot of people looking for guidance on how to take action. Uh, so I get to play an important role in supporting all of that work, uh, making connections to uh, to the changing climates, and you know, just helping people understand those trends, the information that's out there so that we can all be more prepared for our new climate reality. Fantastic. So I love what you said about the climate story. So helping people use data because there's a, so much data available. We're constantly collecting data and numbers um, and looking at how things are changing, but people might not be able to use that data day to day. I know I don't know if I go about my average life thinking about like wind speed and the way that coastlines are eroding. So I think it's very cool to use that kind of data in a story and tell a story because that's what we really connect to, um, especially if we're trying to like combat climate doom. I know I talk to a lot of kids and they're like, well, climate change is going to happen. We're all going to like the world is burning. The world's on fire. Like that's just how it is. But I think it's very cool to be able to actually help people and tell people that things are changing. And if we change, we can also help each other out and kind of help survive this a little bit better. So that I think that's very, very cool. Yeah, and so, just to, to quickly say, like, I think that's a big, a really important role that uh, that we try and play as an organization is making that whole idea of adapting to climate change more accessible. Uh, there's a ton of information out there about the impacts and just a lot of reason for people to be worried. And as you mentioned, people are experiencing anxiety and grief and a whole variety of negative emotions about the changing climate. Um, but there are ways that we can take action. There are a lot of reasons for hope and trying to 
make it approachable as a topic about yes the climate is changing but it's not this unknown quantity we can talk about the magnitude of that change we can talk about the timing of that change and where it's happening at a very localized level uh, and just make it more real for people and uh, really just find ways for them to to take action at that local level i think is really important that's so cool so kind of a, a, a sillier question here but I know a lot of kids might be wondering, how much math do you have to do on a day-to-day -day basis? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I think it's important to have an understanding of math. Um, a lot of the math I do actually isn't terribly complicated. It's adding and subtracting and taking averages and comparing numbers to each other. Uh, so things like knowing means and medians is, is really, uh, really crucial. That's a lot of the, the numbers that I communicate. Um, you know, of course, you can get a lot more complicated. I've done, you know, programming of computer models to pull all of this massive amounts and gigabytes and gigabytes of data and, and process it in specific ways. So if you want to do that sort of thing, like, yes, having an understanding of uh, a little bit more advanced math and some programming is important. But uh, again, a lot of the ways that we measure weather aren't terribly complicated when you get down to it. It's measuring amounts of rainfall and looking at a thermometer for temperatures. So the ways that we manipulate those numbers aren't uh, aren't too complex either. So, uh, but yeah, going back to subjects to pay attention to in school, if this type of career sounds interesting to you, yeah, like math and science uh, and kind of where those lead into, into you know, physics and earth science, into hydrology and meteorology and things like that as you get further and further in your education. Uh, those are sort that's kind of the, the background that I have uh, for the work that I do. Awesome. So you said so you mentioned hydrology. Do you have a background in hydrology? Uh, my background is in environmental science. That's what my did it what I did my undergraduate degree in. So that was a whole mix of just sciences that relate to the environment, everything from hydrology, looking at water to meteorology, looking at weather, looking at soil science, and uh, particularly it's beyond just the uh, how the world works, but also how people interact with it, um, how we manage the environment, how we uh, extract resources, all of that. Uh, and then further in my education, I did a master's degree in climate change. So very specifically looking at uh, how our climate is changing, understanding that science, understanding how adaptation works, how uh, the role of mitigation in, in trying to understand what our future climate looks like. Uh, so that's my my academic background, I suppose. Amazing. Yeah, as an, a fellow environmental science undergrad uh, degree holder, I think one of my favorite things is learning about you know, all these really complex processes. We've got so much complicated math. We've got so many complicated models and data and engineering that we do from like satellites and a lot of data and monitoring, but then also on the day-to-day -day, looking at how people interact with the environment, looking at how like community gardens can help people engage with their environment. And if we look at, you know, local planting, um, if we go to coastal areas and we plant local grasses and stuff, how that can help climate change on a very specific community level. So do you, it sounds like you work a lot with like different communities and stuff, like helping yeah. them come up with like climate adaptations. Are there any kind of really cool examples that stick out to you of like climate adaptations? Yeah, sure. Um, I think really one of the exciting things about working in climate change is that climate change, well, on the scary side, it impacts so many things, but on the exciting side, I get to work with a ton of different people doing some amazing, very 
varied uh, work to, to help address some of those impacts. Um, you know, for example, we chatted a little bit about sea level rise earlier. Uh, there's some really fantastic projects taking place in different areas around the coast of our own province, looking at installing living shorelines and uh, restoring salt uh, salt marshes, really important ecosystems for helping to, to buffer our coasts against those rising seas and the, the storm surge that uh, is being brought to our coasts with, uh, with more hurricanes and things like that. But adaptation isn't just uh, some of those natural approaches. It's also you know, looking at infrastructure. I was you know, just talking to a group in the province that designs our highways and bridges, talking about how we can use uh, extreme rainfall data and, and how that's projected to change into the future to make sure our infrastructure is designed appropriately. Uh, and it's also just talking to communities about what they care about, what concerns that they have. Um, doing work with municipalities and other community organizations all around the province, uh, just getting people, getting concerned citizens in the same room, talking to each other about what they're worried about, what impacts they're seeing in their communities, uh, whether that's on the environment or on their health, um, on, uh, on certain types of infrastructure and chatting through ways that we can try and address those things through erosion control or at a very local level or even just um, starting groups that are willing to keep this on the keep climate change as part of their conversations. Um, you know, a lot of decisions happen at a very local level by groups that have specific expertise and I think that's uh, that's exciting as well. Uh, even things like talking to sport and recreation organizations about you know can we schedule events differently so we're not exposing athletes to extreme heat during these uh, really intense events and there's just so many different avenues to be thinking about how our climate is changing and how we as a province and as a society can be planning to uh, to adapt to the changes we know are coming. It sounds like like climate change is really going to fit into so many different aspects of our life, like taking the school bus to school in the morning, for example. You know, you have to make sure that you're driving on high like on roads that are climate change proof. Pretty much you don't want your road yeah. to be washing away. This is a very yeah. Nova Scotia specific example. But looking at all of the like erosion from Hurricane Fiona a couple of years ago, we saw so many roads that washed away. Like, how are you supposed to get to school if the road is washed away? How are you supposed to get to work? So I guess like climate change adaptation is about building roads that can maybe withstand that. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's certainly part of it. And even just it can be even taking a step back uh, beyond that. You know, why do we have roads? It's to get to school and to get to work and to allow our uh, the, the heartbeat of our province to to continue. Um, you know, even with um, the intense rains that we saw a little bit earlier this year that washed out a, a rail line that really connects the port of Halifax to the rest of Canada and impacting how we distribute goods and services around the, 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 the country. All of a sudden it comes down to one um, rail line got washed out and that was disrupted for several days and really puts into perspective how interconnected we are as uh, as a society and as a country. Um, and actually, even just where you mentioned school buses, that's a fun example. I did some work with our Department of Education a, a while ago, and they're looking at uh, should we tint the windows on school buses to better protect students during extreme heat events, for example, just try and keep them a little bit safer. Um, there's lots of just tiny little examples of uh, how we can better prepare for a, a climate that's that's changing. It also sounds like this kind of work is also very creative. You have to think about all the different ways that climate change could impact your life in so many different facets. So do you want to talk a little bit about like what creativity has to do with your job? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. Um, and the way that I usually frame it to, to folks that I'm working with is I am the climate expert. I can bring that understanding of how our climate is changing, but you are the expert in what you do, whether that's 
farming or infrastructure or uh, just how your community operates and what's important here. Um, and it's really it's going to take all of us talking together to find where those intersections are. How is climate change having an impact on what you do on your community, on what you care about? Um, and how can we use some of that information and, and resources and data to make good decisions for the future? Um, I often go into conversations often having no idea on what the actual end result of that will be. If I'm talking to, you know, like an arts and culture organization, as an example, I have very little background in that area. I'm not sure what they're going to be concerned about, let alone what they want to, to do about it. But if we sit down and have a conversation, I have uh, never found a situation yet where we can't find some common ground about something we're concerned about. And once we have a better understanding of those concerns, we can pull at uh, examples of what other people are doing or tap into that creativity uh, to think about, OK, if this is a concern, who needs to be involved in the solution? Uh, what resources do we need to put towards this, both you know, knowledge and finances and uh, even just excitement for uh, what can our community really come together to uh, feel excited over it and galvanize over over um yeah how, how do we want to take action as a group uh, creativity plays a huge role in uh in my day-to-day -day, which i think is really exciting no two days are the same that's for sure i love that i love that creativity can kind of be um a little bit of an inspiration maybe a little bit of hope like let's say if you're talking to a community and they're they have a problem they're really worried about how um climate change might make their community really really hot We've got a problem. How do we come up with a solution? And how do we make that solution something that we can get excited and hopeful about? And I think that's that's very cool about what you do. Um, yeah. So kind of a question that we always like to ask our guests here is what's like your favorite science thing or technology or engineering or math thing that you've done? It's a great question. And uh, I've had good luck in my career so far to do some amazing things and you know, do some really exciting field work and things like that earlier on. But uh, yeah, maybe just to, to keep things to the topic at hand, I'll talk about uh, kind of the first big project that I really had a chance to lead around climate change uh, uh, impacts and adaptation, which was uh, around forestry and uh, adapting forestry programs. Uh, so it really started again with uh, a group of people that had concerns. They were worried about how to manage and restore forests in a changing climate, how forest composition is changing, different species to, to plant, how to address disturbances like more wildfire and uh, storms, things like that. Even thinking about forest growth and productivity and carbon sequestration, how are all of these services that we're used to relying on going to change uh, as our temperature and precipitation patterns alter? Um, and I guess this is a really uh, concrete or really uh, useful example that I like to think about because thinking about trees in a changing climate is a great way to understand some of the changes that we're expecting because as humans we're really used to making very short-term decisions thinking at most months or maybe a few years ahead of time but when we plant a tree it lives for decades and if we plant a, a tree today we might anticipate that it would see the changes that we're talking about by the year 2100 which is a, a pretty common time frame that we look at in climate science. Uh, so through the, the course of this work, I had a chance to really dig into some of the scientific research, uh, thinking about how climate influences species distributions and migration capability of different species, um, impacts from extreme weather and pests, and like all these really detailed questions that uh, 
research as I've been looking into for years, um, and ultimately try and provide some options for taking action. Uh, and that both relates to very specific management approaches, as we were kind of alluding to earlier. You can do things like promoting better adapted species and even uh, better adapted genetics within forests, um, but also reducing existing stressors and protecting from disturbances and some pretty concrete uh, examples of ways that people managing forests could go about that. Uh, but I think one of the really big takeaways for me from leading this work was also just how important it was to build the capacity of that group to adapt, building their own knowledge, trying to provide or really just reinforce how important it was to provide education and training about climate impacts on forests, how important it was for them to maintain an engaged network and continue talking to each other, transferring knowledge from group to group, uh, particularly, you know, with uh, uh, nature and climate change, we're seeing species further south do a little bit better in our future climate because it's a little bit warmer, a little bit wetter. So how can we talk to those people now to understand what those types of species need to thrive here uh, as our climate is transitioning and things like that? Uh, and really the rewarding thing for me about that whole process was taking a group of people from start to finish, uh, a group of people who had concerns about climate change, a, a lot of concerns and, and didn't feel like they had any answers or didn't even know where to start looking for uh, for those answers. So be able to find answers to their questions and connect them with each other was just so incredibly rewarding. And I find that same process plays out in a lot of my conversations in the in the years since and, and even in my day to day work today. Uh, like really my favorite thing about the work that I do is helping people to understand how climate change impacts what they care about and collaboratively find those really tangible ways to uh, to take action. That's a really powerful process, I think. That's fantastic. I remember seeing something about how if you are experiencing climate doom or climate anxiety, which is when you're really stressed about climate change, you should go out and you should do some work about climate change or talk to somebody about climate change. And it really helps out making you feel a little bit better. Um, yeah, absolutely. And maybe just to build off of that point quickly, uh, I think that's one of the really interesting articles that I've seen recently coming out of the, the research side of things. Um, sometimes we feel that our individual actions don't necessarily have an impact on the, the global scale for this massive challenge of climate change. Um, but those individual actions do have a major impact to us mentally. Um, doing something to take action in our local communities has a massive impact on uh, combating climate anxiety and climate grief and all of that. So absolutely as you mentioned that's a really important message for people to know so you also mentioned the year 2100 correct yeah i did yeah what's so special about that year besides that it's a even number <laughs> <laughs> i think an even number is part of it it being a, a turn of the century is part of it uh, but really thinking back to when as a global community we started uh understanding how our climate system or that our climate system is changing and starting to really dig into the hows and the whys um, that was, you know, in the past couple of decades. So at that point, looking out to 2100 was about 100 years away, uh, which seems like a, a reasonable time frame for some of the really long term decisions that we make as humans. Uh, things like planting forests or managing some of our, you know, where do we put a hospital if we want it to be, you know, not at risk in, in 100 years, things like that. So it, it just seemed like a reasonable time frame to look out far into the future to see what are, how can our actions today have an impact um, on what our future might look like. So as an example, just kind of based on our actions today, or, or in some cases, our lack of actions as a global community, we know that by the mid-century timeframe, around 2050 or so, um, our the choice of scenario that we use doesn't actually have all that in, that much of an impact on our uh, on the climate that we experience, just because a lot of that is locked in with the emissions we've already put into the atmosphere and things like that. 
But when we look further ahead to the year 2100, it has a major impact on what our future looks like. Uh, so if we do see some relatively immediate, relatively drastic reductions in global emissions today, our future will be much easier to adapt to than some of those much uh, more difficult to plan for changes if we look out to a time frame like the year 2100. Awesome. Yeah, that just that number kind of stuck out to me because I feel like I hear a lot about 2030 and 2050 and we have to cut down the amount of emissions or gas that we're putting into the atmosphere to to get to a place where our planet's going to be safer. So 2100 is very, very, seems very far. Right. Grand scheme, it's the next generation. So it's maybe kids listening to this. It's maybe our kids. It's whoever comes next after us. And we want to make sure that we're looking after them as well. Absolutely. I um, think it's really important to have that, you know, multi-generational thinking when we're talking about leaving the world in a better place for the people who follow after us. I, I think for the first time in a long time, that's sort of been called into question with climate change. So now that we know what's happening, what can we do about it now to set the future up for success? I love that example of, yeah, where are we going to build a hospital so that in like 50 years, it's not going to be washed away or it's not going to be, you know, rained on so much because, you know, building a hospital isn't cheap and you also want to make sure that the people in the hospital are are safe and able to get care. So this is the kind of thing that we need to think about and maybe use a little bit of creativity to think about all the different things that could impact how we're going to make decisions, like small decisions that we make every day, like what we're like, if we're going to wear a jacket or a sweater to school, that kind of stuff, like that's a very small decision. You make that every day. But if you're making a bigger decision, you need to think about what's the weather like today and what's the weather like next year and what's the weather like in 50 years. So it's, it's very cool. You also mentioned something called carbon, se carbon sequestration, carbon sequestration. Um, do you want to just explain what that is? Yeah, certainly. So I guess really going back to the fact that the driving force behind why our climate is changing is the fact that humans are emitting vast quantities of what we call greenhouse gases that uh, are really effective at trapping heat within our atmosphere. Uh, so these are gases like carbon dioxide, methane and, and nitrous oxide, among others. Um, and when we're talking about carbon sequestration, so that are that is basically processes that withdraw those types of greenhouse gases and, and specifically carbon in that example from the atmosphere. So, uh, for example, plants uh, by photosynthesizing, they withdraw carbon from the atmosphere. They store that within their tissues and uh, often transfer that further down into soils and, and lock it away for longer periods of time. So that ability to regulate the amount of carbon in the atmosphere is why ecosystems like forests and wetlands are so incredibly important for uh, our, the health of our planet and, uh, and our long-term future. Uh, yeah, as a whole. Fantastic. Another kind of maybe silly question. Maybe you know the answer to this. I've heard that books, like physical books, are a really great example of carbon sequestration. Is that right? <laughs> uh, interesting question, uh, for sure. Um, I guess to an extent, they are carbon that has been locked away in a physical form for some period of time. Again, a, a book will eventually decompose uh, if we were to, to throw them away or something like that. And revert those gases back into the atmosphere. Uh, like really when we're talking about carbon sequestration, we're often thinking about longer timescales. So for example, even over the lifespan of a tree or something like that, it will absorb carbon, it will grow, it will um, have that carbon in its leaves, shed those leaves, it will eventually die and decompose. And as it decomposes, it releases that carbon back into the atmosphere. Uh, so when we're thinking about carbon sequestration on sort of that long-term global timescale, it's how can we lock that carbon away for, um, 
decades and, and even centuries to come, uh, which is really the issue that we have with fossil fuels, right? We're taking carbon that has not been within our climate system for millions of years and reintroducing it very quickly. Um, so that's, uh, I, I suppose, at a very micro level, a book is an example of carbon sequestration. That doesn't mean we should continue cutting down trees to make books uh, just to sequester that carbon. Trees are doing great things while standing as well. Uh, but yeah, these are the interesting kind of nuances to think about when we're talking about how carbon moves through our entire uh, global system. Okay, so we're talking about climate adaptation. So if we bring it down to kind of the community scale or organizational scale that you work with all the time, what about like schools? Let's say we have a school. How would kids at an eco club or a green club kind of get involved in climate adaptation and making sure that their school is ready for whatever climate change throws at us? Do you have any suggestions or recommendations? I think that's a fantastic question. Um, maybe a place I would start is again, just take a look at uh, some of the information out there about how the climate is changing where you are, where your school is located. There's a lot of really user-friendly resources that are available online or reach out to climate services specialists near you to learn more, just to get a sense of what are the issues? How hot is it expected to get in summers in the future? How mild are winters intended or expected to be? Uh, how intense might our rainfall events be in the future? How much snow are we getting? Just to build that sort of baseline understanding of what did things used to be like and how is that already changing? And then talk to people who've been in that area for a while, whether that's your teachers or staff at your school, your, your parents or grandparents, people in the community to understand what did things used to be like when they grew up. You know, I've heard stories from uh, folks a couple of generations back that remember when snow used to reach up uh, almost to the power lines uh, and they had to be warned to stay off the snowbanks to uh, not put themselves at risk. And think about a winter like we just had where it was almost brown the entire time, just recognizing how different things already are. So uh, understanding what the changes have been, uh, and really that's kind of the process of identifying what are we concerned about? Are we seeing erosion uh, around the, the parking lot or around some of our school buildings? Um, are we concerned about uh, it being too hot for students to be outside and can we maybe plant trees to give them a shady spot to, to go out for recess and not have to be uh, be stuck in, in the school building, things like that. Um, but yeah, identify what some of those concerns are, extreme heat, wildfire, smoke, um, floods, erosion, and, and try and just dig into some of those really small scale localized options, uh, a lot of which can be very cost effective as well. So kind of within reach for uh, for a very small eco club or something like that. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a, a nice way to start engaging with, uh, with the climate crisis at a local level and, and take some action. Fantastic, amazing, I love that. Um, so I think we're just gonna hop back a little bit. Um, I remember what my question that I had. Um, so where are these fossil fuels coming from? You said that these are like carbon that has been sequestered in the earth for a long time and now we're putting them up into the atmosphere really quickly. So what are these fossil fuels that we probably keep hearing about everywhere? Yeah, good question. So fossil fuels are carbon resources, things like coal, things like natural gas, um, things like oil uh, as kind of the main examples. Uh, a lot of these were formed millions and millions of years ago from organisms that uh, themselves sequestered carbon from the atmosphere and lived and died. Uh, trees and plants going back to, you know, dinosaurs and, and 
things many, many, many uh, years ago um, that uh, kind of ended up in the soil, ended up uh, at the bottom of lakes and gradually were covered up by sediment over time. And as they went further down into the Earth's crust, were subjected to immense heat and immense pressure, which kind of transformed that carbon into that sort of liquid or solid form um, that, uh, that exists to that it exists today. Uh, and of course, these are very rich energy sources, which are why they're in such high demand. They have enabled the industrial revolution around the globe and brought us uh, some really you know, fantastic technologies, enabled us to power and heat our homes and cars and get around the world far easier than we've ever been able to do before. But in recent decades, as we've come to understand the uh, side effects of putting all of that carbon back into the atmosphere, it's become clear that that's not a sustainable solution long term. And we need to find different ways of powering our society if we really want to, again, set this future up for success. So what are some other ways that we can power our society? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of folks have started seeing more solar panels or wind turbines uh, pop up in areas near them. Uh, there's even emerging technologies like geothermal or, you know, in Nova Scotia, there's interest around potentially using tidal power, um, uh, using uh, hydropower from, uh, from dams and rivers and things like that. There are many ways of harnessing kind of existing natural resources to do some of that same work for us. Um, it's ultimately a lot of our power comes from just the ability to generate uh, uh, a current through uh, through winding um, winding a turbine. I forget the exact physics behind it, um, but yeah, just finding things that move naturally, like wind, like sun, to to provide that source of energy uh, is uh, is probably the path forward. Um, and in a lot of cases, what I've been seeing in recent years is that the technology is already at a point where it's possible to make that switch. It's just finding the momentum and finding the resources to uh, to get us there. That's the challenge, but there's hope. There's hope. Fantastic. Um, so what is one thing that you think everybody should know about climate change adaptation? Like if you could have one huge billboard written, <laughs> what would you want on your billboard about climate change adaptation? Oh, gosh, uh, I think if we had to do one sentence, it would be the future is ours to shape. Uh, I, I really like that message. We've been uh, using it a little bit in, in some of our work around the province, just setting that message that, yes, the, there are a lot of challenges that climate change is going to bring, a lot of impacts, again, on things that we care about. Uh, but that doesn't mean we need to resign ourselves to the future being worse to, than today. Uh, we still have a very significant role to play in uh, what our future looks like. So the more we understand what those changes are, the more we uh, encourage ourselves and our friends and our neighbors and our communities to take action and have those difficult conversations, the better position we're going to be for uh, for the generations down the line, for Mother Nature down the line to continue thriving and just uh, provide the type of world that we that we want to continue living in for everyone to follow after us. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Alex. I learned so much. That was fantastic. Is there anything else you kind of want to touch on um, before we kind of wrap up? No, I think that's great. That was uh, that was a good list of questions. Yeah.
That was fantastic. I learned so much. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alex. It has been a blast having you on the podcast. I know I learned a lot about climate change adaptation and maybe what that looks like in the future and how, you know, I'm excited to see what the world will look like. It's not all doom and gloom, especially when we have smart people, smart, creative, and people that care on the ground doing the work. So thank you, Alex. My pleasure. And as always, a huge thank you to everybody listening. For more science fun, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at supernova at DAL. Do you have a question that you'd like answered by one of our experts? Send us an email or a voice recording at what do scientists do at superstaff.ca and we might actually answer your question on the show. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for Alex and I'll see you next episode. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>